As somebody who's used to lecturing law, it's an especial pleasure to be in this theatre for this extraordinary event, and I want to welcome you all here. My name is Conor Geerty. I'm in the law department, and it's LSE Law Department's contribution to LSE's literary festival called Branching Out. And you are about to see something completely innovative, which will be explained for you by our colleagues and co-hosts of this event, Just Fair. Before I ask uh, Just Fair's Professor Ethan Nolan to come up and explain something off the procedures this evening, and then, after that, assume my role as clerk and summon the judge to enter the building. Some of you may have seen the judge wandering around suitably judicially garbed. <laughs> I want to tell you that you can tweet and you can tweet with the hashtag of austerity on trial uh, if, I say, peering at people who are not present, and I've always wanted to say this, if you are in the video overflow room, <laughs> all you need to do is put vid in your tweet link, and you get to us. If you want to follow our commentary, if it's not enough to be here, but you have to feel you to be truly here by reading something about what's going on, <laughs> Follow us on LSE for Law. As I said, this event wouldn't have happened without an NGO, uh, which uh, has been absolutely central, Just Fair, and it gives me enormous pleasure to ask one of the trustees of Just Fair, Professor Ethan Nolan from Nottingham University, now to say a very few words by way of further explanation. Aoife. Well, given that we all know that time is tight and Connor has said a few words, I will now speak for 12 minutes uninterrupted. <laughs> right. Anyway, listen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you on behalf of Just Fair. We're a young organisation that strives to combat poverty and inequality by campaigning for economic and social rights, like the rights to food, to health, to housing and to social security, for everyone in the UK. And we're absolutely delighted and very grateful to be co-hosting tonight's event with LSE's Department of Law. In terms of the work that we're doing and how it fits in, and here is where my seven minutes begins. No, don't worry. Just to give you a quick sense of why it is that it is of interest to us and to other austerities of interest to us and other human rights um, activists, is that spring of this year we'll see Just Fair launch an economic and social rights consortium with the aim of monitoring these fundamental rights. And that means that we'll be looking at England and Wales and situations like child, food and fuel poverty, homelessness and welfare reform. And we're doing so so that we can bring, we can bring these findings to, our, to the elected branches of government here in England and Wales and then to, so that we can call for change at the UN in 2015 when the UK's performance is going to be reviewed. So, a bit of background. But back to the proceedings at hand. My job now is to give you a quick outline of how tonight's event is going to go. Now, in short, the prosecution are going to give their case, the defence will reply, there will be a summing up by our esteemed and fully clothed acting judge. This will then be followed by an electronic vote of audience members, which means that as you leave, there will be, and I believe Bradley explained the technical term was electrical magical gizmo thingies that you will click your guilty or not guilty finding into. But so you will have a chance to have your say in what you hear as well. We'll then take a break when over a glass you'll have an opportunity to chat, consider, perhaps you know, deeply regret your own verdict, 
And then when you hear the klaxon, it's time to come back in. And we mean come back in quickly. We do not want to, tr you have to come out and chase and herd you. Because that will be the moment when, as with all trials, the key moment of the night will come, and that is when the jury will deliver their verdict. And we'll then reveal that to the audience. And there will be some time at the end, given the amount of participation, the amount of information you'll have heard, to reflect on the verdicts. And Connor will lead that discussion at the end, which will involve our expert witnesses seating in front of you. And we expect the whole thing, you'll be glad to hear, to be over by 9pm, at which point there may still be a glass of wine outside. So, let the proceedings begin. Mr. Clark, the charges. Ms. Monaghan. My Lord. My Lord, members of the jury, uh, I represent the prosecution, the people, along with Mr. Burton. Mr. Howe and Mr. Honey represent austerity. Now, members of the jury, the charges that are the subject of this prosecution are set out in the indictment that you have in front of you. You will see that this indictment charges austerity with a number of offences, as you've heard from the clerk. The offences are identified under the statement of offence with details of what austerity has done or failed to do under the particulars of those offences. In summary, members of the jury, the people allege that austerity has violated a number of international laws. These laws bind the United Kingdom and a breach of them is a breach of international law for which the United Kingdom government must be held responsible. You will see, members of the jury, that the first set of offences charged in the indictment against austerity concern breaches of the covenant on economic, social and cultural rights. This is a legal instrument that requires states to ensure that everybody, all of us, enjoy certain minimum living standards and that standards are progressively improved. Have I disappeared off the microphone or can I still be heard? Thank you. Living standards are progressively improved. Furthermore, any deliberate regression, that is moving backwards, will violate those laws unless they are strictly necessary. Uh, members of the jury, the people say that since 2010, when the coalition government came into office, 
Austerity brought to a halt progress in all the areas covered by the Covenant, namely the right to work, the right to fair wages, the right to decent living conditions, the right to access to medical services, and the right to education. The United Kingdom is legally bound to take steps to improve in these areas so as to increase wages, improve living standards, and secure access to education. And since 2010, they've been going backwards. The people say that austerity has caused significant hardship for people. The real value of wages is down while inflation has risen. Living conditions have got worse for all but the rich. Access to health care and education for ordinary people has been cut back. Mr Howe and Mr Honey say, on behalf of austerity, that it's a case of mistaken identity, members of the jury. Austerity hasn't been present since the election into government of the coalition, they say. There's just been a trimming of spending in light of the world's economic climate and that things have not in any case got materially worse. The people have to show you otherwise, members of the jury, if we're able to prove austerity guilty as charged. Mr Howe and Mr Honey say also that austerity was a fundamental element of the election manifesto of both the Tories and the Lib Dems, and so had the consent of the people, so not the proper basis for a charge. Uh, consent of the people, they say, who elected the Tories and the Lib Dems into office. And in any event, they say, austerity is necessary. The second set of charges you have in your indictment, members of the jury, allege that even if a cut in public expenditure could be justified as part of the austerity measures, its impact has been discriminatory. The burden has fallen most heavily on the most vulnerable who've suffered the worst. Women, children, disabled people, black and minority ethnic people and students, all adversely and disproportionately affected. That too, members of the jury, breaches international law. International law prohibits discrimination and prohibits discrimination in those areas covered by the covenant that I've already identified. The prohibitions on discrimination require states not to discriminate against women, not to discriminate against minority racial groups, not to discriminate against disabled persons, students and children. You'll hear from Mr Howe and Mr Honey that austerity measures weren't targeted deliberately at these particular groups, but that, members of the jury, is nothing to the point. The law prohibits policies which have that effect, whether intended or otherwise, and unless strictly justified. Now, members of the jury, that's a summary of the charges and austerity's defence. It's your job in due course to consider the evidence and decide whether austerity is guilty as charged. You'll hear from our witnesses first, and they'll tell you that far from a case of mistaken identity, members of the jury, austerity, which we all know means cuts to public spending and cuts that hit the poorest hardest, has been caught in the act. We don't need to look very far to see the effects of cuts. More children living in poverty, food banks, increased student fees, meaning fewer and fewer ordinary children able to access higher education, disabled people not being able to access the support 
which would permit them to uh, participate in ordinary community life, and public services hitting the most vulnerable, cuts to public uh, services hitting the most vulnerable the hardest. And we've also got a very convincing witness for you, not somebody who will appear, but who will be in the background throughout. A very convincing witness, members of the jury, and that's the coalition government. The very government that instituted the cuts that form the subject of these charges. They have already told us, members of the jury, that these are austerity measures. They're cuts. This isn't a case of mistaken identity, members of the jury. They've been caught red-handed. And is it necessary? Well, Mr Howe and Mr Honey will tell you that these austerity measures are truly necessary. Don't be fooled, members of the jury. Don't be fooled by stories of necessity. This is a right-wing government that doesn't like the state, thinks we should all look after ourselves, and it's tough if we fall through the cracks. The banking crisis and international monetary decisions have been used as an all too convenient disguise to pursue an ideologically driven agenda and things are getting worse, not better. And if you've any doubt about that, think about this. Even on its own terms, austerity has failed. Government borrowing is up, not down. All this pain for nothing. There are other ways to balance the books, as we'll hear in due course. And even if you decide, members of the jury, and we urge you not to, but even if you decide that these cuts were truly necessary, or austerity was truly necessary, this government ought to have made sure that they didn't fall disproportionately on the needy. The rich should pay their fair share. The cuts should not discriminate, and they do, as you will hear, against the most vulnerable. Uh, and just to wind up, members of the jury, don't be fooled either by austerity's defence that this was all done with the nation's consent. We voted for it, they say. Do you remember telling our, them telling us that a vote for them was a vote for increased child poverty? That a vote for them was that the old and mean the old and disabled would be left without care, and our young people wouldn't be able to access employment, wouldn't be able to access higher education, and wouldn't be able to leave home because they couldn't afford to do so? We don't remember that. The real legacy of austerity, members of the jury, will be wasted human potential. Childhood spent in poverty, a society which serves only the few and not the many, that, members of the jury, is irreversible. So you have an onerous responsibility in a modern democracy, members of the jury, that values human rights like ours. It's your duty to tell austerity that it won't be tolerated. My Lord, I call Mr. Will Hutton. Well, let me get on with it. I've only got four minutes. Um, I, I want to build on what's been said, and I hope my... First of all, I want to make the argument that, uh, that this austerity... Can you hear me, Teddy? Am I not booming? I want, I want, to, make the this, I want to make the argument that this austerity was uh, a discretionary act. There was no necessity... Uh, to make the kinds of choices uh, that have been made uh, and their, their character and the duration. I want to build on the point they were not mandated by uh, a democratic vote. Um, and I want to also argue that actually the economy has a very different structure uh, and behaviour 
to the ones the merchants of austerity peddle. We co-create wealth. There is interdependence between the public and private sector. We co-manage risk. Uh, and not imagining that that was true was an approximate cause of the banking crisis who said, we banks can manage risk by ourselves. We found they couldn't. We co-mitigate the imbalances and instabilities that a capitalist economy throws up, which all economists of all persuasions recognize. The market economy is not self-organizing. There are not acts of God that we, that we have to uh, follow. Uh, austerity is not compelled upon us by some exogenous force. It was a choice. Yes, in 2008, bank assets in Britain rose to more than five times our GDP, unparalleled in our economic history. Yes, um, two banks, Lloyd's and Royal Bank of Scotland, were in effect bust. Had they not been rescued, the uh, financial system would have collapsed uh, and with it the wider economy. What was likely to happen in the years that followed um, such a moment when banks were crocked, unable to lend, and trying to unwind the loans they had made, and we, to whom they had lent the money, ourselves trying to unwind the borrowing that we had made, both in the business sector and in the household sector, those of you who borrowed large sums of money to buy a house, and actually on your credit card, and actually were amongst the banks themselves who borrowed all kinds of money to make this lending. They were bound to try to reduce that. What you don't do, what is Economics 101, is that whilst that is happening, to launch a simultaneous program in which the government rolls back its deficit in the name of austerity. What is bound to happen is what we are living through. Anyone could have foretold that in 2010, and thus it has passed. Even if you take the view that actually the public deficit at 11% of GDP was too high, and that debt to GDP was too high, there were choices about the time scale and the character of actually reducing that and ways you could mitigate the impact. You didn't have to attempt to eliminate the structural deficit in four years. You could have taken 10, as we did after the IMF crisis in 1976, as we did after the ERM crisis in 92. You didn't have to do it so fast. Nor did you have to do it so that four-fifths of the burden was taken by expenditure cuts and one-fifth by tax increases. You could have done it 50-50 at the very least. There were choices to be made, and the wrong choices were made. Taxes. We could have, had we chosen, increased <coughs> taxes on property. We could have introduced taxes on financial transactions. We could have increased taxes. Uh, we could have widened the tax, the tax base. Those choices weren't made. The choices that were made were to uh, actually make the tax burden less broadly burdened rather than widely shared. The expenditure cuts were so aggressive that inevitably they went into the marrow of, of, the, of our social structures and actually the delivery of public services to ordinary men and women. No attempt, no serious attempt, was made to intervene in the way banks lend, to persuade them that they could lend to offset the impact that this, that this um, private, this, this, this squeeze that was led by the um, public sector was, being, was, uh, was, was inducing. 
In short, what we're living through was a political choice. It wasn't mandated. It was built upon a false notion of how an economy works. Economies aren't self-organizing. They require intervention by public authority. And that intervention was abjured with the consequence you see before you. Thank you. Firstly, just picking up, please, on the point uh, that you made about taxation, uh, we know that there has, in fact, been one form of tax increased under this government, and that's value-added tax, VAT. Are you able to help us with the impact of that tax on various parts of the community? Well, if you... <clears throat> First of all, it's a tax on consumption. Uh, first... Secondly, uh, it's everybody, whether you are a low-income person or a middle-income person or a high-income person, pays the same proportionate increase. So if you're lowly paid or moderately paid or living on um, state support, inevitably it will have a disproportionate impact on you than if you are richer. Uh, and again, the, the, the VAT base could have been broadened uh, or there could have been exemptions on those categories uh, that actually poorer people spend their money on. Thank you. Just, just a couple more questions, if I, if I may. Thank you. Uh, uh, just very shortly, uh, we may hear it suggested that employment has in fact risen under the uh, coalition <coughs> government, and I should like, like uh, uh, please, for you to help us with that, and in particular, if that be so... What forms of employment have arisen, uh, and uh, by reference, for example, to security, pay levels, and the like? Um, uh, employment has risen. Productivity has fallen. Uh, what we notice is that the employment has, written, uh, has risen notably uh, amongst uh, the uh, over 50s, uh, fastest, actually, amongst people over 65, um, the kind of uh, the, the, the kinds of job that have um, increased have been those in self-employment and part-time work. Um, the the self-employment is very often people desperately trying to set up a sole enterprise to make some kind of living uh, in a very very kind of because there's no other choices uh, open to them. Um, uh, <clears throat> some companies have hoarded labour. Um, because they expect things to get better. Uh, it's an open question if things carry on just drifting along uh, in this kind of stagnant economy through which we are living with growth subdued. I mean, a point to make, and everybody should know this, that um, you are months away from the five-year anniversary of peak GDP in Britain. It reached a peak in the second quarter of 2008. Here we are approaching the second quarter, and that's between uh, April, May, and June, <clears throat> of um, 2013, and GDP is still 4% below that level. There hasn't been such a prolonged period of, of depressed output in the sense of recovering to the peak um, for over 100 years. Even the recession in the early 1920s didn't last this long. So we're living through an unparalleled period. Uh, companies have, have been betting that actually this isn't an unparalleled period and have been hoarding workers. Whether or not they can carry on doing it uh, is an open question. What is, but what is absolutely certain is the productivity of the people they've hoarded has fallen. Thank you. And finally, uh, Mr Hutton, you've told us 
uh, why austerity isn't working, that it isn't working, why then uh, uh, do you say that this government is pursuing that agenda with such enthusiasm? <clears throat> I think it's pursuing it for two or three reasons with such enthusiasm. Uh, I think the first reason, and I agree with you, um, is that uh, they really believe that, um, that there's no codependency between public and private, that if you reduce the state, automatically the private sector will uh, take up the slack. Um, that doesn't happen. And I, in that sense, I see this as, as you said in your opening remarks, you know, driven by an ideological view to kind of reduce um, the state. The second view is I think there is a, uh, uh, a complete hysteria about debt, public debt. I mean, you all need to know that the ratio of public debt to GDP, uh, which is currently around 7% of GDP, uh, it's been higher than that uh, for most decades since the middle of the 18th century. Uh, it's only been lower than that for about four decades in the last 250 years. Interest rates are the lowest they've been for 300 years. The cost of servicing public debt in Britain has only been uh, more expensive in, in aggregate, that's paying the principal and paying the interest, in 15 years, the last 250. And yet there was this hysteria that there was a debt problem, uh, which is absolutely not the case. Uh, thirdly, there was paranoia that um, Britain would be, uh, could be at risk, uh, as Greece was, it appeared, in 2010, and there's a few weeks before, between the formation of the coalition government and the implementation of this austerity program in June of 2010, that actually whatever we did, we didn't want to, be, um, the, the, to lose our credit rating and actually suffer the assault of um, the international capital markets. Well, three years later, we just have lost our AAA credit rating, and I regard uh, the, the, the whole thing in that sense as going to a self-defeating analysis, the notion that Britain was analogous to Greece was a wholly false prospectus. You put the three things together and you have why austerity took place. As I say, it was a political choice. Uh, I'm absolutely certain um, that when the history of these times are written, that actually this will be seen as one of the great calamities in our economic history, rather as returned to the gold standard was uh, in the middle of the 1920s. Winston Churchill, who was Chancellor at that time, later in his life, did acknowledge that was one of the few absolute things he got completely wrong. I have absolute confidence that George Osborne, in his memoirs, uh, along with David Cameron, uh, in 50 years' time, as doddering old men, will acknowledge that this was a first-order calamity and actually cost not just the country dear, but the Conservative Party. Mr. Howe? Oh, sorry. Yes. Mr. Hutton, uh, what happens when the international bond markets lose confidence in the ability of the country to repay its debts? Uh, well, the, uh, the, the, the country in question has to pay a higher premium um, for um, selling its debt if it cannot sell its debt to its own people. But of course in our case, um, as you know, uh, a, almost all our public debt is sold to um, the Brits, not to foreigners. Uh, as you said, um, the increase uh, in interest rates occurs if the bond markets lose confidence. And uh, isn't this right? It becomes a self-feeding spiral. Once interest rates on public debt go up, 
uh, it then becomes clearer that there will be no prospect or reduced prospect of the country concerned repaying its debts. It then turns into a vicious spiral. People won't lend to it, and you end up trying to uh, get a bailout from external funds such as the IMF. And this has happened to this country in the not-so-recent past, hasn't it? Well, I think there's a number of points there. Um, I mean, first of all, um, you have choices. You have choices. Uh, You can choose, uh, if you want to, um, to restructure um, your public debt. Um, You can can choose, uh, as um, Argentina uh, has done, and as actually I happen to know the Ministry of Finance and Bank of... uh, the Ministry of Finance in Japan is currently um, considering of actually restructuring your debt. So you just say to your debt holders, um, you know, I'm sorry, but you're, you thought you were going to get this money back over 10 or 15 years. It's going to take 30 or 40 years. I mean, you do have choices. Of course, you know, then the people to whom you borrow money from also have choices about whether they're going to lend to you. And in that sense, and you're right. And those include the uh, <laughs> but, but, pension but, funds but, in this country who would lose out if we yeah, but default correct, on our public debt yeah, yes, in the way but, you but, suggest. But to characterise this as the alpha and omega, in which there are zero choices but to go for austerity, is, I think, a first-order mistake. There are, there are, there, you do have choices. Of course, the choices have consequences. And those consequences have to be weighed up against whether you want the other consequence, which is austerity. Well, Mr. Hutton, you say austerity. Now, do you, do you not accept that in every year since the coalition government came in, there has, in fact, been a real terms increase in public expenditure in the United Kingdom? All that's happened has been a reduction compared with the plans that existed under the previous <coughs> Labour government. Well, that is a complicated story, actually. I mean, there's, there's been an increase in... There's been an increase in um, cur- some some current expenditure, you're right, um, and that's been offset by a collapse in capital expenditure. And the reason why current expenditure has risen is, all, is because of the austerity measures themselves. Um, you know, that actually there's been more payments to um, distressed families, there's been more payments on kind of all the income-related uh, aspects of um, the welfare bill because of um, the squeeze on living standards. So yes, you know, you, you, you do observe that, but that is a consequence of, of having austerity, not actually um, a relief of it. But uh, you, you would accept, wouldn't you, that there are many e- uh, economists who disagree with your view. In fact, you've sometimes described them uh, as a consensus that you don't like. There are, it, is, it, it is clear that there are a lot of economists um, who, you know, there, there, it's true that, the, that um, economists have disagreed over this. I mean, at the time the coalition uh, government launched its austerity program, it's fair to say that uh, probably the majority of mainstream economic opinion, certainly a number of economists here at the LSE, um, the CBI, the Bank of England, um, took the view that actually uh, that there wasn't a choice, that, that an austerity wouldn't be self-defeating. Three years later, I would argue that the opinion has very substantially changed. The IMF, for example, has concluded that the so-called multipliers, the consequences on the economy of cutting public expenditure very rapidly, are much greater than it thought. It recommended, actually, um, (coughs) that um, the burden of an adjustment program should be taken by expenditure cuts rather than tax increases. That's not a view it would now take, for example. And a great many um, economists in the City of London um, uh, and more widely 
have actually changed their mind, urging a so-called plan B. So, you know, yes, you're right, there was a consensus then. I would now say the consensus um, is more four-square behind the position I've taken uh, than it used to be. Well, your, your criticism is, in effect, a criticism of the government for having followed the majority or consensus view uh, in a difficult issue of economic judgment, uh, rather than following your opinion. <laughs> um, uh, I, yeah, what can I say? I mean, I, I, it's, it's obvious that there was a misconceived consensus in uh, um, May, June of 2010. Um, uh, but I think in a, in a trial like this, I mean, the fact that you, you know, um, that there were others getting it wrong alongside you doesn't excuse you from the fact you got it wrong. Uh, but isn't the... <laughs> Uh, I mean, you're, su you're suggesting the consensus was misconceived. Uh, isn't it fairer to say that your theories suffer from a misconception, the funda mis fundamental misconception being that you can cure a crisis caused by too much debt by taking on even more debt? Well, that's the slogan. Um, that's the slogan uh, that but actually uh, slogan, a great number of people have been parroting, and I'm very sorry that... Uh, as distinguished a QC as yourself, Paris <laughs> again. Uh, but I, uh, I mean, that's what I, I've, done, I've tried to say, that actually when the cost of debt service um, is, uh, there's only been 15 years the last 250, when actually the combined cost of um, uh, paying back the money and paying the interest on it is as low as now, to parrot that reply is, is I mean, I, it's just absurd. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not a sentence that should leave a sentient oh. human being, and not one as sentient as you. Well, well, <laughs> let's, not, let's not get personal about this. But I'm complimenting you on your sentience. Isn't, isn't the reason, isn't the key reason why borrowing is so cheap for the United Kingdom, thereby allowing us to have more expenditure than we otherwise could, because austerity programme, or so described as an austerity programme, has given confidence to the international bond markets and allowed the government to borrow, borrow so cheaply. And if that programme had not been followed, we would be in a debt crisis. We would have the IMF here imposing real cuts, real cuts on this country. Isn't that right? Well, two points. First of all, not even the IMF would impose a, 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 a programme as draconian as the one that um, uh, we're living through. I mean, I, uh, you can't get much more aggressive than trying to get to eliminate a structural deficit in four years. So, you know, uh, the IMF might even have said, take, take five years over it. So I'd have welcomed them in. Uh, next point, I mean, why are, why are interest rates at a 300-year low? Interest rates that are at a 300-year low, uh, actually they've gone up a little bit more over the last, two, over the last 10 weeks. Um, they're at a 300-year low because um, inflationary expectations are phenomenally low. I mean, actually, we're living, we're living through a period of... Um, you know, very, 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 very um, low inflation, and people have been astonishingly uh, uh, averse um, to uh, buying any kind of asset that has any kind of risk attached to it because they're so worried about the future because of um, austerity. And you can see that in the private sector where, you know, companies have built up close to £800 billion of cash, which they're not 
investing. And if they don't invest it, where do they hold it? One way or another, that finds its way into the bond market, driving interest rates down to these incredible lows. I mean, you're living through a period of you know, real kind of e-cut, where the, e-cut, the, the economy has been so badly mismanaged and the private sector is so fearful about risk and, the, and what's going to happen in the future that it's just doing... It'll, it'll almost pay you, uh, pay the state, to actually hold money for it, which is why uh, the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, Paul Tucker, floated the idea this week of having negative interest rates. It's got nothing to do with austerity. Uh, austerity, uh, you know, these, interest rates are, the, these interest rates are happening because of the extraordinary times through which we're living. Thank you, um, Mr Howard. I think... Um whether or not austerity is present, we have an austere timetable for this trial. Uh, Ms. Monaghan, do you have uh, any re-examination for this witness? No, thank you, my lord. Could you call your next witness, please? Yes, please. Uh, Ms. Polly Toy, please. Thank you. Uh, well, whatever the size of uh, the uh, economy, whatever you decide the envelope should have been, Uh, However much the government should have had to spend or not, which Will Hutton has dealt with, and I absolutely agree with his view that most of austerity was needless. The government promised that we are all in this together, and that indeed is what what the international law demands. The opposite, of course, is the truth. Um, The uh, austerity has not been distributed evenly or fairly. It's been distributed with extreme cruelty. Those with the least have been hit hardest, not once, but often, serially, over and over again, same families, same households, struck down again and again. Women, children, disabled people, ethnic minorities hit hardest, those already at the bottom of the scales. If you look at the graphs produced by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the poorest tenth, has done worse. The top 20% has done least badly. And it's not just the poorest. If you look at the work of the Resolution Foundation, it's the bottom half, those earning 26,000 and under, that's the, the median, uh, the median uh, earning, have lost out, and they are falling further and further behind with a 7% fall in their income uh, by 2015 estimated, and it may be worse. Women have been much harder hit than men for a number of reasons, partly because public sector jobs have been hardest hit and where women predominate in the NHS, in social services, in local government. As mothers, uh, the extent of the cuts that they have suffered is quite extraordinary. Not nearly time here uh, to read out the list of cuts because they are pages and pages long and very often hitting the same people over again. I'll just pick out a few. Childcare costs helping women uh, into work have been cut by one, the, the subsidy for, for, for lower paid women cut by 1,500 just as prices are rising far higher, uh, far faster and higher than inflation. Women are leaving work, are working less because they can't afford the childcare, so now many fewer women work here than across most countries in the OECD. Didn't used to be so. More women are low-paid, more in part-time jobs than men. 1.4 million people in part-time jobs want longer hours. This is the great hidden unemployment. It's a very good thing that unemployment is not as, uh, as high as it has been in previous recession, recessions. Work has been more evenly spread. 
But that means there are a lot of people who've got only a few hours who desperately want to work more and still cost the state a lot because that low pay has to be topped up with tax credits, which is part of the reason why public spending is still rising. It's rising through the costs of failure, not success. So you can cut and cut and cut again and in a kind of death spiral where public spending still has to rise unless you're going to have people starve on the streets uh, through the extra payments in tax credits and the extra payments in job seekers allowance and similar costs or costs of, uh, of, of uh, the unemployment uh, system and administering it. Uh, just to take some examples, couples who can't find 24 hours of work, of, uh, of work a week between them had a tax credit cut last year of £4,000. People who are already on 17000 lost 4000 A lot of this is silent and unreported except by The Guardian and a few others. Uh, a lot of people just don't know what's happening. This is very hidden, very silent. Other cuts that uh, women have seen, huge cuts in maternity grants of a, ho a whole list of them, baby tax credit gone, sure start, which was a terrific help for families uh, most deprived. It's really being shredded. Large, 400 of them have closed. Most of the others no longer have any form of childcare in it. And that's not the half of it. Children, 400,000 at least, and possibly up to a million, depending on which measures you use in the Child Poverty Act, uh, more will be in poverty by the time of the next election. Child benefits being frozen, child fr trust fund abolished, EMA, Educational Maintenance Allowance. Uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies found it had a tremendous effect on encouraging people to stay in school after the age of 16. That's been abolished. That was £30 a week. That's a lot of money gone. Um, the disabled have been hit really hard pushed through much tougher tests, 36% of them pushed off benefits, most of them not into work because the work program hasn't worked for them at all. And it's such a crude test that, under FOI, official figures show that 1,700 people died last year within weeks of being found fit for work. So it shows how useful a fit for work uh, test is. Uh, housing, worst housing crisis we're in since the war, effective you know, 30 years of failure to build by successive governments, yet austerity is hitting those already suffering in the housing squeeze most. The cuts in housing benefit are absolutely savage. Uh, bedroom tax, where anybody has a spare bedroom, is uh, on government figures going to force out 660,000 people out of their homes, sending them far away, often hundreds of miles away, taking kids out of school, parents out of work, to no-hope places where there are no jobs, where housing is only cheap because there is no work, and then the benefit system penalises them because they haven't got jobs. Disabled people are expected to leave homes that have already been expensively adapted. So are they going to either have no homes or are they going to put in homes where new expensive adaptations will have to be made? Not even foster carers are going to be allowed to keep a spare room so that they can foster children, and there's a desperate shortage of foster parents. The homeless are being turned out now into occupying expensive hotels, which is an absolute madness. This is the uh, austerity economics of the lunatic asylum. <laughs> the benefit cap is coming in in April. Any larger family or family with a very high rent, because high rent, there are very high rents, and rents have gone up much higher than general inflation, when people will say, no doubt, the other side, look how the, uh, how the housing benefit bill has risen, it's still risen slightly less than the costs of housing have has risen generally. Yet, 
The shocking fact is 70% of cuts are still to come. We haven't begun to see the worst of it in benefits <coughs> and in local authority services and in central government services. I think one of the worst things that austerity has done is while doing all this, demonizing the victims. Hate speech, filling the air with hate speech, uh, priming the friendly newspapers with hate speech, stirring up the strivers uh, versus skivers rhetoric uh, in, in a way that has been absolutely savage. All of this, and you know, next month, uh, on top of that, there is going to be a tax cut for the very richest. Uh, the, very, the effect of that is that 13,000 millionaires are going to get a £100,000 bonus tax cut in April. Why? It's inexplicable. I would finally use myself as evidence in some ways for the injustice. Uh, me, my friends, my colleagues, probably lots of people in this room, probably most of people here. I don't know, some of them over there might be a bit above, above the rate. Um, we have been asked to contribute nothing, as far as I can tell. Uh, one thing I think I've lost, and that's OAP swim it, free swimming. That went on the first day. I don't think I've lost anything else at all. Nobody has asked me for more tax. Nobody's asked me to contribute more. I'm not in the very top 50% uh, lot, so I won't get the, the drop down to 45%, but I'm in the 40% bracket. And as far as I can see, all of the pain has fallen on those who suffer most. And until I feel that I, my friends, my world, people like us, are asked to pay a lot more, are asked to pay more, not less, than those with the least, then I know that austerity has been, is being, will be much more unjust and discriminatory. Thank you. Just pause there, please, Just two very short questions. We've got very little time, but I could just ask you to address these. Firstly, uh, you told us about the scandalously shocking impact of these measures. Can you tell us, was, is there anything else the government could have done, bearing in mind the agenda that they're pursuing? Oh, you mean what other cuts? If we were going to keep within the same envelope, we weren't going to talk about you know, whether we could borrow more and so on. Yes, of course, lots. I mean, I could start with relatively small things like my bus pass and my winter fuel allowance. Or for some reason, once you get to pension age, I'm still earning well, I'm fine, I'm in full-time occupation. I don't pay any national insurance. That's a huge amount of money. The government has protected anybody old because they vote uh, and hit anybody young because they don't. We have to get the young to vote. The children, of course, can't vote. And the poor don't vote much because they're so disaffected and they don't think anybody's standing up for them. So, uh, of course, the old have had a huge amount of protection. And my generation, or the lucky generation, we've lived through three or four housing booms. We've seen property that we bought, uh, you know, at the beginning of the 70s, saw astronomically, filled our pockets with money, undeserved, unearned, untaxed. I would have... Um, I would have capital gains tax on, on people's own homes uh, to stop house prices ever rising again above inflation. Tax evasion, you know, official figures are about 32 billion of the tax gap. Some campaigners say it's up to 120 billion could be collected if we collected tax. Just the likes of Amazon and the rest of it closed down, tax havens, all of that. Defence, wars haven't got as far. Trident, we must be mad. Um, <laughs> You look at the uh, European Union now bringing in a financial transaction tax, Robin Hood tax on banks, that's going to bring in about 30 billion. Well, why aren't we doing that too? Can't think why. Um, 
Meanwhile, the city, which we're protecting all the time, actually its share is falling in terms of uh, exports and, international, uh, and, and, and its inter international position. Uh, we need to find other ways to earn our living because the city is what has destroyed us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Um, Mr. Howe? I'm sorry, there will be some questions. Sorry, Mr. Tuckbayer. A couple of questions from me. Um, what your complaint, or part of your complaint at the end, was that the government had uh, protected the elderly, particularly, compared with other sections of society. Um, would the, would the uh, austerity be on trial for discrimination against the elderly had it uh, pursued policies you would like? and no, cut I'm back on benefits to the elderly. No, indeed. I'm asking for fairness and proportion in how the austerity is applied, which means that the richer elderly, of whom there are considerably more than there used to be, a lot of the old aren't, aren't rich and I wouldn't hit them, but there are a lot of very well-off people with hu hugely property rich, with very large pension pots, and they have not been touched. Uh, no benefits for the elderly. Of course, I wouldn't touch benefits for the poor. I would make things proportionate to people's uh, means to pay. Well, let, let's think about that generation, and let's think about the generations to come. And uh, do you not accept that borrowing on the sort of scale that we're having to borrow at the moment, and borrowing on an even greater scale, if that were necessary, uh, would it, will end up impoverishing generations yet to come? No, I don't Again, think increasing the unfairness between generations. It's a jolly good catch line. It's, it, it works very well. We mustn't, you know, our grandchildren will be paying for our debts. This is absolutely not true. It's the old handbag fallacy of the economy thinking that it's like running your own domestic economy. Governments, countries are not like handbags and household economies. They just aren't. But Will has dealt with that one. Um, what I would say about, about borrowing is that if you're going to borrow to invest... That's what we most desperately need. We've already heard how it's the capital that has been cut, and as a result, it's the jobs that have been lost and the future that's been lost. We are going to return to the sort of squalor we've had before. We've had governments who have failed to build for hospitals, for schools, for roads, for rail, and all of those things we desperately need. It's the capital cuts that were the most savage of all in terms of overall spending. And investing for the future, indeed for our children and grandchildren, is part of that. Now, you mentioned, uh, uh, the, uh, as it were, the, t the type and nature of work in your evidence before. Uh, isn't it right, if you look at the statistics, that more women are now in work than have ever been in the past? Well, uh, the economy has produced significantly higher levels of employment for women in the last three years. I don't think that that's actually true because a lot of women have fallen out of work and what is true is that we have fallen well behind in the international tables. If you look at France, you look at, at Germany, you look at countries across the OECD, uh, we are falling very far behind in the numbers of women who work, which is a disaster because most households these days need at least an income and a half to get by. Uh, either, only the very, very rich can afford to have a woman, a wife at home who doesn't work. And we, uh, you know, we're very low on that table. And that's part of the reasons for low income. Well, with respect, uh, my witnesses will contradict your uh, evidence about the statistics, uh, but we'll, we'll leave them to, to give their evidence in due course. Um, you criticised um, some aspects of the reforms of the benefit system. Uh, would you not agree uh, that a benefit system which encourages people to stay dependent and indeed encourages generations of some families to stay in dependency, 
and does not do enough to get them out into the workplace is itself something that needs reformed, regardless of the short-term cost, really. It's not, not to do with short-term cost. It's to do with uh, uh, improving the benefit system. Ian Duncan Smith always talks about three generations of families. Researchers have now been out and found not one, not one, anywhere. He hasn't produced one. They've asked him, where is a family? One family, please, just as a Daily Mail anecdote. Not one. People fall in and out of work. Uh, temporary insecure work in places where there isn't very much. Yes, of course. What the, other, the other good rhetorical trick is to look at the bottom 1% to 2% of society, the most dysfunctional the families in real trouble who are addicts, who have serious mental problems, who really need help and are in a desperate state and whose children desperately needed sure start that's now being closed to try and rescue them from the very beginning, to try to stop that cycle. But we're talking about a very small number. Let's remember the majority of those who are technically poor, who are poor in this country, more of them each day, are in work. The dysfunctional few is very nice. You sort of focus on the gutter the way the Daily Mail does, the way Ian Duncan Smith does. It makes everybody say, oh, well, they're all hopeless cases, aren't they? But when people hear that most of the people are actually in work, they feel a bit differently about the fact that you can work and still not get by, still be using trust or trust food banks, still be needing tax credits. All of us, our tax is going to subsidise the failure to find people paying work, partly lack of the living wage, which is well, another problem, well, and the fact that the minimum wage has now fallen back in value to what it was in 2004. Well, isn't it right that the uh, public sector wage freeze, lower paid were exempted from it? So the government, in fact, in implementing this policy, has taken positive steps uh, to protect the income of the lowest paid. Ah, they said they would, but they didn't. But they did. They did. I must disagree with you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ms. Thank you, Ms. Uh, uh, we, we have no re-examination. Thank, thank you. you. Ms. Monaghan, do you have another witness? Uh, we do. Thank you. And um, Mr. Burton, my lord, is going to take this witness with your leave. Uh, thank you, my lord. May I call uh, Magdalena Sepulveda, please? Members of the jury, you have heard a lot of facts, and you will hear more facts uh, in a minute. But you have to decide whether or not these facts constitute violations to the international obligations assumed under the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the Conventions of the Right of the Child, the Conventions of the Rights of Person with Disability, and the Convention on the Elimination of all form of discrimination against women. So it is important that we go through what are these obligations so for you to decide if the acts or omissions that we have heard constitute violations of these obligations. Let me be very clear from the start. We are talking about obligations of international law that has been voluntarily assumed by a state. This obligation implied that the state give away some part of sovereignty. They limit, voluntarily limit, their discretion in terms of the social policies they are going to implement. Scarcity of resources in time of economic hardship is not an acceptable justification 
to violate obligations of human rights treaties. Therefore, you have to keep that in mind. I'm going to refer to five obligations that I hope you will keep in mind when taking a decision. First, the obligation to using the maximum available resources, maximum available resources to progressively realize the rights. This implies that the state has to mobilize all necessary resources. This extends to, for example, uh, monetary policies, fiscal policies, taxation policies. So they have to explore all the alternatives that exist in order to comply, to ensure the obligations that they have voluntarily assumed. The second obligation is to ensure a minimum essential level of economic, social, and cultural rights. This means that they have to ensure, they have a core obligation to ensure an adequate standard of living through basic social uh, health care, public services, uh, education, etc. This obligation is not the same for all the states. There are more than 160 state parties to the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and not all of them have the same level of obligations. Those states who have more resources have more obligations. The level of obligation, their minimum standard of living that the state has to ensure is higher. So we cannot compare one of the seven richest economies in the world with a less developed country. All of this uh, state have a different level of obligation. Another important obligation is the obligation to avoid deliberately retrogressive measures. It is very important to keep in mind that under international human rights law, there is a presumption that any deliberate retrogressive measure is a violation of the, covenant, of the covenant's rights. Therefore, this implied that the state has to provide justification that they have explored all available options before taking a decision. They have to justify that decision and at the same time, that decision should not violate certain human rights principles. The most important of them is the principles of equality and non-discrimination. Therefore, they have to ensure that, they when, that when they design and implement policy measures, there is not going to be a group that suffers disproportionately than others. So, if women persons with disabilities or ethnic minorities suffer disproportionately, there is going to be a violation of the covenant right. And the fifth and final obligation that I would like to stress today is that there is also a procedural obligation. In the implementation of any policy measure, the state has to ensure that there is participation meaning broad national debate about the issue. And in order to have a broad national informed debate, it is necessary that the state provide information in an accessible manner, information that, the peop that common people understand, that is information that is without technical jargon. 
So if until now you haven't understand what are the measures that the state have taken, there is probably a problem with the right to information. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much. One moment. Uh, Mr. Levine, I have three very quick questions, I promise, for you. First of all, could you just remind everybody in the audience of your expertise? Because it's fairly clear from your name and your accent, if you don't mind me saying, that you're not from these lands. So. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. I'm the United Nations uh, Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Extreme Poverty. Uh, first question. Uh, there might be a fair few people in this room who might think that human rights doesn't really have a lot to say about poverty, except in countries like perhaps Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa or India or something like that. What would you say to people who have that uh, conception of human rights and poverty? I would say that we have to think of human rights. Let's change the title and not use human rights. Let's talk about social justice. So if somebody will argue that uh, when people are suffering devastated consequences of some poli social policies. It is not an issue of social justice. There is a, there is a problem with the person and not with the term. Uh, and, and perhaps slightly a greater number of people might be under the following uh, conception too, which is that this debate's really about economics. It has nothing to do with human rights at all. So could you just answer this? What does international law on human rights have to say about a situation that a government faces where there are various choices about how it might confront an economic problem? It is. I mean, the human rights are rights that everybody has. There are, in, uh, there are inherent rights for being human beings. And at the core of that right is that we are all equal and we should enjoy the same opportunities and we should enjoy the same rights. So, if we are, if a policy measure impacts some group in a, in a way that is, if we don't, let's put it this way, if we do not share the burden equally, it is a problem with human rights. It's a problem of justice. Thank you. You'll be asking more questions. Mr. Hamm. See if this works again. Um, Dr. Sepulveda, welcome to this country. Your visit. Um, <laughs> Can I just ask you, you, you um, uh, uh, for, uh, in, in your work for the United Nations, uh, look at a lot of international comparisons uh, of different countries and how they're performing and what they're doing. Um, if you look uh, at international comparisons, let's take, for example, Greece and Spain and, and let's say, Ireland. Uh, have you, are you aware of the austerity measures that have been taken by the governments in those countries. Yes. And, and what, how do you view those? In the same way that I view the ones here. But they're much more extreme, aren't they? Uh, uh, but massive, as I said, the, obli the obligations are not the same for all countries. The level of obligation is different, and it depends on the level of uh, the wealth of the country. Yes, but the, let's, let's take, I mean, Spain, for example, you've mm -hmm. got... Uh, youth unemployment in excess of 25%, if I'm right. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, it is right. Um, and uh, obviously, it depends on the external environment of the country concerned, uh, but in their case, they've had a problem of having to impose uh, quite sharp and severe austerity measures because of a loss of confidence by international lenders in lending money to the Spanish authorities. Mm -hmm. Isn't that right? 
So that, um, and then Ireland, again, because of problems over international borrowing, has had to impose really quite much sharper cuts. For instance, 10%, I think, public sector wage cuts, not just for freezes, but cuts across the public sector. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Ireland actually started off richer than this country per head uh, at the time of the crisis. Is that right, Tim? Uh, yes, but the, obliga- the international obligation of the states are not in, in, in a comparative manner. They depend on the obligation that the state have assumed in regard to the protection of its own population. So if in other countries there has been violations of uh, international obligation, that doesn't excuse another country of uh, violating, I, violating I, I, their own obligations. I, I see. So they're all in violation, in your view. Is that, is that in, it? In, to some extent, yes. But we will need to determine the act and omission and then the causal link of, in, in, in each case. So, so all the, or a lot of the countries have been struggling with the consequences of the international financial collapse are, in your view, in violation of their obligations under international law? There is some countries, for example, from the region that I can, from Latin America, in which uh, they, instead of implementing austerity measures, they are implementing counter-cyclical measures. They have increased social spending in order to protect people. Basically, because we already learned the lessons in the past when a structural adjustment program left, left our population in a very uh, devastating situation. Well, let's consider, you've quite rightly said that the, the obligations to, to try and improve living standard under the Convention is not an absolute obligation, but it depends upon the resources that are available. Yes. First. Secondly, it's an obligation to progressively improve them. Under the it is, it's, it's an obligation to progressively Im- improve and devote the maximum available resources. Yes. Yes. So you cannot separate the two of them. No. So if the maximum available resources have not been uh, mobilized, then there is a violation. So well, what, what we don't understand um, on this side of the, the court, uh, in the defence table, is how it can be a compliant with the Convention to take on more and more debt, which has the effect of depressing the living standards of future generations. Uh, Uh, I think that uh, looking only at the side of debt, it is not looking at all the available options that uh, exist in order to reduce deficit. Therefore, for example, the possibility to increase the the, the, uh, uh, tax base by increasing taxes to the wealthiest segment of the population or by avoiding evasion, it is also a possibility to reduce deficit. Well, uh, you say that, but of course the problem with increasing taxes when you have very high levels of taxes to start with is that it can stifle economic activity or it can drive people out of the country or it can drive people to avoid taxes. So you end up actually not raising the revenue but instead damaging your tax base. Uh, And that's been seen clearly, for example, in Greece, hasn't it? Yes, in the case of the UK, that is debatable. So from an international point of view, the obligation for the state is to make that argument and uh, provide that they have look at all the options, 
justify the measure and make this information available to the public in an accessible way. So the public is the one who has to decide. I see. Thank you very much, Dr. Sepulveda. So re-examination. No. <laughs> Mrs. Monaghan, is that the case for the prosecution? The prosecution rests, my lord. Mr. Howe. My lord, uh, members of the jury, uh, human rights is an important subject. Human rights violations are uh, a, a very serious matter of concern uh, throughout the world. Uh, this prosecution, however, has nothing to do uh, with any human rights violations, so, so properly so called. This prosecution, rather, is an attempt to use human rights law as a means of furthering a political campaign, a, political, a particular political viewpoint uh, about what should and shouldn't be done. Now, what uh, the witnesses for the prosecution have accepted, Mr Hutton, their chief economic witness, accepted the consensus of economic thought when the present government came to power was that austerity was necessary. He, doesn't, he didn't agree with it then, he doesn't agree with it now, but the criticism that the government is committing a human rights violation by doing its best in the interests of the country uh, in the light of the consensus of economic advice at the time, in my submission, is completely misconceived. As it is, uh, the policies that have been pursued, they've been called austerity, and the benefit they've brought to this country is that we have been able as a country to borrow, we need to borrow because of the huge deficit, but we've been able to borrow far more cheaply than if uh, the, the previous policies had been carried on with. We would almost certainly have had a bond market crisis and we'd end up now looking at a very, very much more severe economic scenario. Now, that is our view. That's the view uh, of the defence witnesses. Uh, you will also hear... Um, that the way in which the austerity programme has been framed has specifically sought uh, to shield the more vulnerable groups in society. Uh, we do not agree with the prosecution's assertion that simply because as a matter of statistics some measure may affect some groups differently from another, that itself equals discrimination. Almost all cases um, in which uh, 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 we have a complex society, any measure you take, um, will affect different people in different ways. Discrimination requires more than that. Uh, and uh, there's nothing discriminatory in taking necessary economic steps and measures. Finally, uh, I would say that the fallacy in this prosecution can be seen in the title of this case. This case is entitled The People Against Austerity. However, this is not a case brought by the people, this is a case in which it is sought to overturn the decision of the majority of the electorate at the last general election to vote for political parties who wanted to... Please, can you listen to the um, uh, Mr Howe's speech uh, with courtesy? Thank you very much. Who, want, ...who clearly said in their election manifestos that public spending needed to be reined in who then came together in a coalition with the central purpose of fulfilling that pledge to the electorate. And what is sought to be done by this prosecution 
is to use allegations of breach of human rights law uh, in order to object to a particular political decision, political particular exercise of judgment, of difficult economic judgment, because those involved in this prosecution personally disagree with it and don't like it. They're entitled to their views. They're entitled to campaign for their views. They're entitled to campaign for a different government in the next election if that's what they want. I think they probably do. (laughs) But that doesn't mean it's a breach of the law for the elected government to pursue the policies upon which it has been elected. This is an attack on democracy and democratic accountability. This is not a human rights case at all. You call your first witness. Now call as my first witness, Mr. Andrew Lillike. Good evening. I'm uh, Dr. Andrew Lillike. I'm an economist, chairman of Europe Economics, and I should, by way of disclosure, note that uh, in another matter, I'm accused by the BBC of providing the essential theory behind the coalition's 2010 uh, economic strategy. Um, So... um, In the first instance, I would say, with regard to this, that um, austerity has not been present in the public sector over the relevant period. So austerity is, as helpfully identified by the counsel for the prosecution, um, is understood um, commonly as the cutting back of spending and the reduction of debt. So austerity has been attending on the private sector a little since 2009. That's been happening. There has not been any such thing going on in the public sector. Total managed expenditure of the public sector has risen every year of this Parliament. Debt has been accumulated at a record pace. Thus, in any ordinary sense of austerity, it just hasn't been present. Government deficits, um, or according to your taste, uh, structural deficits, provide what economists refer to as injections. That means that they uh, add to economic output, but they don't necessarily increase it. Uh, When such injections are reduced... Some economists like to refer to that as austerity, even if the amount of the injection is still at a record level. So if you move from the greatest ever injection to merely 99% of the greatest ever injection, some economists like to say that that's austerity. And when you hear descriptions of austerity in the press, that's the kind of thing that they're referring to. So, for example, in the UK in 2009, whereas during the previous 20 years um, the levels of injection provided through structural deficits was between minus one, that means they took a bit out, to about 3% of GDP, in 2009-10 the the government injected a record 8.9% of GDP. Absolutely enormous. Then that's come down to 2011-12 to merely 6% of GDP. So just we're moving from the largest ever to merely the third largest ever level of injection. So you can call that, uh, so I would say that a more politically meaningful way to describe that is as the withdrawal of stimulus. And indeed, that is how the term is commonly used in politics. So um, occasionally, uh, economists like to give this activity the nickname of technical austerity. But I think that you and I know it, this, the ugly brother of uh, austerity, by its more more normal term, namely profligacy. Austerity was not guilty cannot be being guilty of these crimes because she wasn't present during the relevant period. If anybody's to be guilty of these crimes, it will be her brother, profligacy. So, although she plans to visit in due course. Next, I would dispute that austerity has the capability to perform the crimes alleged, even were she present. First, the assessment of any action requires a consideration of the counterfactual. 
If I come along and I stab a knife into your belly, maybe I've violated your hum- human rights. But if it turns out that I am cutting out a cancer, then matters are different. An austerity programme focused on cutting spending will be more likely to enhance UK growth and to address the most fundamental of its economic problems. Those, it is because the economy is in a bad state that we need the austerity. Those that blame austerity for the um, uh, economic consequences of a bad economy are like somebody who's blaming the consequences of the cancer on the operation. The central risk to the UK economy is that unless there is sufficient growth over the medium term, then without high inflation, which would cause its own highly damaging consequences, households will default on their huge mortgages, that will bankrupt the banks, and since those banks are nationalised or otherwise backed by the state, that would induce a sovereign default of some form, as we've seen in Spain and Ireland. It is a well-established principle of macroeconomics, indeed the central lesson in the past 40 years, that governments cannot increase the medium-term growth rate by running high deficits. They can, of course, damage it, though. The government's two most powerful weapons for increasing growth are to reduce the level of government spending. Each 1% reduction in the, in the percentage of GDP spent by the government causes about a 0.1% rise in the annual growth rate. The next the most effective thing they can do is to increase the efficiency of government spending. That is to make the spending which they do more productive. The government has a moral duty to repay its debts. Were it to place itself at risk of defaulting on those debts, it would run the risk of violating the rights of its creditors to have their money repaid. So austerity cannot, um, cannot have been guilty of the deeds alleged. But if she were, that would be because she was trying to prevent worse crimes. The next thing I would note is that um, the vast majority of cuts to um, public expenditure have been cuts to expenditure on public services of various sorts. They're not the ones that have actually occurred, but the ones that are planned, right? bearing in mind that, are, that we haven't had this austerity yet. Um, the vast majority of them are that form. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that service provision, the kinds of things which uh, actually has an impact on people's lives, is an output, not an input. If I spend more on something and I get less service out of that, then that doesn't help the people who are the service um, recipients. That doesn't help the poor and the sick and so on. The reality is that the public sector has been enormously inefficient for the past um, 15 years. Productivity in the public sector contracted from 1997 to 2007. That means, uh, and public sector salaries are around 30% on some measures, 12% on others, higher than private sector salaries. That means that there's very considerable scope to reduce the inputs, the expenditure on public services, while at the same time increasing the outputs, the provision to people. So the fact that you plan ahead through austerity, which is planned, to reduce the spending on these services should in no way be taken as automatically guaranteeing that the services provided to the recipients of those, of those services decrease. Rather, quite the opposite is possible. It's, there is considerable scope in the public sector to increase the value of those outputs. Spending less on inputs while increasing outputs cannot be regarded as a violation of human rights since it is what every effective and efficient company seeks to do every day. Thank you very much. Um, could I ask you, please, to add to that evidence a description of what effect cutting government spending tends to have on growth? So why would it be? I said that government spending, cutting government spending, tends to make the economy grow faster. And you might wonder why that is, that it happens over the medium term. It may. There's all kinds of things that it might do in the short term, but over the medium term, the economies grow faster. Why is that? 
because there are some kinds of spending, like spending on um, maintaining law and order or preventing you from being invaded from abroad or competition rules or some kinds of regulation that help the economy to grow faster. But much of public spending is actually on things that we like to have, like helping the sick and the poor and building Olympics and things like that. Those sorts of spending are excellent, and all governments spend above the, or all developed economy governments spend above the growth optimal and ought to spend above the growth optimal level of public spending because they get all these nice things in exchange. There's a trade off of having these nice things in exchange for a little bit less growth. But what that means is that when you really need the growth, say to repay your debts, you have scope to grow faster by cutting back on that sort of spending. And that's why you should expect economies to grow faster over the medium term. There will always be scope to grow faster over the medium term by cutting back on those forms of government expenditure. Thank you. You'll have heard um, Mr Hutton talking about the character and duration of austerity. And you've told us that austerity is not here now. What can you say about the plans for the future? Well, there are, of course, those who um, might blame the crimes of profligacy today on the pressure created by the uh, likely visit of austerity tomorrow. And I think that that's um, just a a fundamental error for a number of reasons. First of all, we have to understand what it is that austerity is planning to do. We're taking government spending from around 47.5% of GDP in 2009-10 to uh, around 39.5%, just a little bit below 40% of GDP, by 2017-18. So the level is intended to come down relative to the size of the economy quite materially over that time. But you should bear in mind that even that level, 39.5%, is pretty much the normal level of of, um, government spending relative to GDP for the previous several decades. So if you're saying that that level of government spending is wicked, is somehow a violation of human rights to be spending so little, you should bear in mind that, for example, that spending was less relative to GDP through the period 1988 to 1991, and during the period 1997 to 2003. So if this government is uh, aspiring to be, sometime off in the future, a human rights violator by only spending below 40% of GDP, then you're saying also that the um, first six years of the uh, Labour government involved human rights violations from 1997 to 2003, and that the um, last three years and one first year of the John Major government, the last two years of Thatcher, first year of Major, involved a violation of human rights also, which I think would be a little bit difficult to sustain. Thank you. Uh, And you also heard Mr Hutton give us the benefit of his views about interdependency between the public and private sector. Can you tell us, please, your expert opinion on the role of austerity in the private sector? So so if we think about what austerity means in the private sector, so sometimes people say, look, if um, if the private sector is trying to reduce its debts, then somewhere else, someone else must be taking on some extra debts. So they say that there's a sort of mathematical relationship, that you end up, if you have more, if you end up with less debts in the private sector, there must be more debts, say, in the public sector. Well, that's mathematically true and totally uninteresting, because the point about the private sector austerity is it's a reduction in the debts of private sector agents to each other. So if you repay your mortgage to a bank, then that's within the private sector. If you borrow some, if you lend some money to the government, that's between the private sector and the government. So the interdependency exists in a mathematical sense, and it's, but it's relatively uninteresting because at the time, what we would like is for you, at the time of the, when you are um, repaying debts, there are a number of different things the government could try to do there. It could try, for example, to let you have more money 
so that in that period when you were trying to repay the debts, it didn't affect your cash flow too badly. It could try to do that by things like tax cuts, things of that sort. It could also try to make you believe that today wasn't a very good time to be repaying your debts because growth was going to be higher off in the future. So it could try to, if it could actually convince you of that, that growth was going to accelerate, for example, because it was going to cut public spending so that growth in the future would be faster, or, for example, because it was going to increase the efficiency of public spending so growth would be faster, then those could be successful ways of making you spend more today. And that's exactly the kind of thing which they have been attempting to do. Thank you very much. I'm sure there'll be some questions for you. Are there questions? Yes. Um, Mr. Burton's going to take these, my lord. Uh, if I may, my lord. You may. Um, uh, Mr. Lillico, I wasn't quite sure when you referred to uh, the BBC's description of you as the producer of the essential theory behind the coalition's initial deficit reduction strategy, uh, whether or not you were proud of that fact or not. Um, uh, I said I was accused of the matter. I'm not sure that there's any decisive evidence either way. Right. Okay. So were you the producer of the essential <laughs> theory behind the coalition's initial deficit reduction strategy? So... I, so what that is is that I described the essential theory and said that I didn't agree with it. Right. <laughs> okay. Not well, sure why we're getting bogged down at this point? But the, no. Well, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. We'll perhaps let the jury decide. Um, just to take your point about the counterfactual. I mean, in, in effect, what you're saying is, well, just because things have got bad doesn't mean austerity didn't work because things might have been much worse had we not had austerity. Is that correct? Uh, that's part of it, yes, certainly. Right. And so, but you accept, presumably, that it's acceptable to try and judge austerity by reference to the standards that were advocated at the time and, indeed, the objectives that were said uh, to be achievable through austerity at the time. Uh, I would say that, yes, I, but that also might be a measure of how much austerity there was. Right. right. So you could also be, you might, you might fail to meet the objectives because the austerity failed, or you might fail to meet the objectives um, for external circumstances, bad luck, or you might fail to meet the objectives because you didn't actually implement the austerity. Right. We'll come back to whether or not austerity has been austere enough in a moment, perhaps. But just to take one of the, the, the first indicators, which is, of course, government borrowing. I mean, it's right to say, isn't it, that uh, in 2012-13, Borrowing was supposed to fall by some 20 billion on 2011-12. Correct. But in truth, in fact, borrowing is going to be the same in 2012-13 as it was in 2011-12. Is that correct? Uh, I suspect it will be slightly higher. Oh. Right. Well, that doesn't sound like an entirely reassuring fact for those. And it doesn't who would... sound like austerity. Right. Um, well, another uh, reason that you say austerity was something that ought to be pursued is that it would generate growth. Uh, I absolutely, once you uh, started doing it. And it's also correct to say, isn't it, that we had absolutely no growth last year. Is that right? Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, which, which side are you a witness for again? <laughs> <laughs> so, my contention is that once we actually cut spending, then those spending cuts will lead to growth being faster than it would otherwise have been. Okay. But we haven't cut the spending yet. As, as um, uh, Ms. Toynbee indicated, the vast majority of cuts to spending are still scheduled to come. Well, there might be a few million people in this country who might feel differently about whether or not there have been any public sector cuts, but we'll just leave that for a moment. Um, it's also right to say, isn't it, we heard from Mr. Hutton that, in fact, the economy is some 4% smaller than it was in 2008. Is that right? 
Uh, absolutely. Right. And That's it's precisely for this kind of reason that we need to have austerity. Okay, well, let me come back to another matter it's then. It's because the economy is doing badly that we need the austerity. Well, can I, can I put it this way then? There, there might be this argument, might there, that obviously confidence uh, in the economy is an important part of growing the economy, isn't it? Uh, no, I tend not to believe in the faith-healing theory of macroeconomics. I don't think you can wish yourself well. So the go- you- job of the government is to tell the truth about the economy and then private sector agents optimise in respect of the truth. It doesn't help to tell people lies. Well, I'm sure that's absolutely right. But, so you, you don't agree with the basic principle um, that it's an undeniable, inescapable economic fact that confidence will not be given an opportunity to return if you down-talk the economy all the time. No, and I don't agree with that at all. Because if the economy flourishes, then people will see that your claims that the economy was doing badly were wrong, and they'll stop believing you. On the other hand, if you say the economy is doing badly and the economy does badly, then people might believe that you were telling them the truth in the first place. Right. So when, when it comes to the, the private sector and Mr. Hutton's evidence about the private sector hoarding up to £800 uh, billion pounds because they're too scared to invest it, you say that's because they haven't been told the economy is bad enough to justify spending that money. Is that right? No, I say that's because the economic outlook is very bad. The reason they hoard the money is because it's a very bad time to invest it. I see. So um, if we could then just, just finish by looking at um, one external indicator. Of course, we've, we've, we've heard recently um, that Moody's has downgraded uh, the UK uh, government from its AAA status. Um, and we also know that George Osborne said in 2009 that it would be humiliating uh, if the UK's status was downgraded, and it was absolutely essential that it wasn't downgraded. So you're not going to say that you're in any way humiliated by the downgrading in our AAA status, are you? Uh, no, I'm going to say that, uh, that uh, George Osborne was humiliated by the downgrading of our status. <laughs> well, well, let, let and me... Moody's was quite clear as to why. It said because the medium-term growth outlook was very bad, as I indicated, and I've indicated that austerity is the solution to that, and because the government proved politically unwilling to adjust its deficit reduction program to reflect the fact that the medium-term growth outlook was bad. It's because Osborne abandoned his original austerity program in late 2011 that we have been downgraded. Might I ask it in a slightly different way then? I mean, what seems to be the case is that initially it was said austerity was necessary to avoid a downgrade, and now that we've had a downgrade, it's necessary to have austerity. Uh, It seems like a somewhat circular argument. Uh, No, no, because as I said before, one reason... So you might be downgraded for three kinds of reasons with respect to your original target. It could be that your your original target, uh, the the policy which you tried to make to address your original target was flawed, as you wish to argue. It could also be that some external shock came along, and the Eurozone crisis is one factor in that. But it could also be that you didn't actually do what was necessary to meet your original target. And that's a key factor. The government originally planned to eliminate the structural deficit by the end of this parliament. In in the run-up to the last general election, it said that was essential. In late 2011, it abandoned its plans to uh, to, um, eliminate the the deficit over that period. So as I said at the beginning, austerity isn't present. Okay, so your point basically is whatever cuts are necessary to achieve that were acceptable. Whatever cuts were necessary to achieve that were vital. And would you therefore disagree with the following statement? Cameron is playing the blame game to depress confidence and growth to justify austerity. Secondly, to use austerity as justification for a smaller state to gain lower taxes. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, I think that there probably is some truth in that statement, in that what's happened is that that, uh, Cameron 
failed to, he didn't want to argue that there was an intrinsic virtue to cutting public spending, namely that it would promote growth. Because in the period 2005 to 2008, he insisted that all economic debates in, this UK, in the UK had finished and that we'd moved on to a socio-centric form of politics. So what he wants to claim is that he's driven to cut spending through necessity, through the deficit. I think that that's a mistake. What the, it's not the cuts. What really makes it necessary to um, try to uh, cut back on spending is that growth, the growth outlook is very poor. And because the growth outlook is very poor, there's a risk that our banks will go bust and thereby bust the sovereign. So the correct model for the UK isn't Greece, it's Ireland and Spain. Ireland in 2009 had a AAA rating, look where it is today. Spain in 2010 had a AAA rating, look where it is today. These are not theoretical concerns, this is exactly what has happened in our near neighbours. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. this evening being discussed is the question, how do we protect the most vulnerable? It's economic growth that has the greatest potential to transform the lives of the poorest. Over the last few centuries, it's vastly improved the quality of people's lives. One powerful example Matt Ridley gives in The Rational Optimist is that an hour of work today earns you 300 days' worth of reading light. You compare that with an hour of work in 1800, which only earned you 10 minutes of reading light. It's clear that innovation and enterprise disproportionately help the most vulnerable. As Milton Friedman said, industrial progress, mechanical improvement, all of the great wonders of the modern era have meant little to the wealthy. The rich in ancient Greece would have benefited hardly at all from modern plumbing. Running servants replaced running water, television and radio, the elites of Rome could enjoy the leading musicians and actors in their home. The crucial point then is that we need austerity, or to live within our means, in order to maximise economic growth and to foster innovation. Burdening ourselves with massive national debt is not conducive to economic growth. The scale of the financial challenge that Britain faces is immense. Even with the government having already put up taxes, and even with them planning to make spending cuts, this so-called austerity will still leave us with a growing debt. By the end of this parliament, the UK's official debt will be around 90% of GDP, which is unprecedented in peacetime. What's important and what makes this particularly unique to now is that when you include liabilities such as public sector pensions, the figure is actually over £5 trillion. And why is this important? Well, there's substantial evidence that when government debt is more than 90% of GDP, an economy slows by about 1% a year for a 23-year period. At the end of this Parliament, we're still going to have a deficit of over 5%. Economic growth not only creates jobs and improves living standards by reducing living costs, but it also provides the funds that we need for decent healthcare, 
decent education and for welfare provision. That's one of the reasons why a World Bank study which looked at the value of pro-growth policies found the following. They said that pro-growth policies, regardless of their impact on inequality, are likely to be pro-poor in the long run. In other words, the positive impact that policies have on growth should be enough to eventually offset the potential negative effects they may have on inequality. What does this mean in the UK? Well, we're spending around £48 billion this year on debt interest repayments. That's a similar amount to the entire education budget, and it's about half of what we spend on healthcare. You can imagine how the opportunity cost of this is huge. For all the rhetoric of deep spending cuts to welfare, most spending on benefits has actually been protected under the government's plans. Overall, there's been a 6% increase in benefit spending over the last year. And in the UK, around 70% of children live in a household which receives at least one major benefit. That doesn't include child benefit. And this has been the case for some time now. Poverty in Britain isn't a symptom of trying to reduce public spending. It's a consequence of a flawed strategy based around a centralised model which is obsessed with benefits and social services that for too long has failed to help get people into good, stable and well-paid jobs. Beginning to try to reduce public spending and tackle the UK's deficit may have gone some very small way towards helping the private sector, which is why it's been able to create around a million new jobs since 2010. And it's helping improve the quality and the volume of these jobs that will ultimately help the most vulnerable in Britain. Finally, we need to consider the injustice on future generations of continuing to borrow money at these unprecedented levels, leaving our children and our children's children saddled with debt because we spent beyond our means as an abuse of their human rights. Thank you. Are there any questions? Uh, yes, just a couple of questions, Ms. Porter. First of all, um, just to could you very briefly uh, explain to the audience um, your background and qualifications for giving evidence on the matter, the economic matters you mentioned? Certainly, I currently work for the Institute of Economic Affairs, and I've got close to a decade of experience working in public policy. Thank you. And uh, you mentioned um, the question of employment. Uh, if I ask you about um, employment in the private sector, um, what, what has been happening to the level of that employment recently? Well, I know there was some debate earlier about the impact of that employment, particularly on women. Between 2010 and 2012, if you look at total employment across both the public and private sector, you find that actually it was women who've disproportionately Benefited. So for men, total employment has risen by 288,000, but for women, it's risen by 320,000. And there's also a lot, there's also fewer women, so women are benefiting disproportionately at the moment through the creation of new jobs. Thank you, Ms. Porter. My friends will, uh, from the prosecution will have some questions for you, no doubt. Thank you, Ms. Porter. Uh, first of all, please, uh, looking at your background, um, we've just heard about your experience and that's extremely <coughs> helpful. Uh, I think your 
Director of the Institute of Economic Affairs for Communications. Is that right? Yeah. Um, we have to, I beg your pardon, my voice is rather loud so I usually don't anticipate needing it. Uh, the, the, uh, we have three witnesses here for the defence. Well, we think Mr Lillico is for the defence. We haven't quite worked that out yet, but for, the, for present purposes, let's assume that he's for the defence. Uh, uh, do the other two witnesses have any relationship with the Institute of Economic Affairs? Uh, one of the witnesses is a fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs, amongst the other, <laughs> the other things he's involved with. Okay, thank you. Um, and your job is, as you've said, Director of Communications, and you represent UK business? Yeah? No. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I'm reading your CV, so I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken. Can you tell us what your, what your job I've, is then, I've please? previously worked for, I worked for a trade association for a time, looking at electronics and representing electronics and manufacturing. Right. That might be what you're referring to. Okay. No, we're an independent think tank. We right. don't represent business. You're an independent think tank. Uh, would you describe yourself as a right-wing think tank? No, we're a free market think tank. Ah, free market. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. That's very helpful indeed. Um, uh, now, just, just looking, please, at the uh, 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 evidence you gave about benefits, you were talking about there being a limited, limited cuts in benefits across, across, the, across the field, so to speak, yeah? Well, I was saying there's been an increase in benefit spending over the last year. There's been an increase in particular in tax credits, hasn't there? Yeah. And that's because pay for insecure labour has gone down. And so the government is having to fund that by tax credits there's a, for the working poor. There's a substantial problem in the UK to do with living costs, and which is very difficult for the poor at the moment. Sure. And to, be clear, to be clear, the issue that we face in the UK with rising living costs, which is making life extremely difficult, especially for the poor, is not the result of austerity or reductions in public spending. It's the result of various other government policies and failing to do things like deregulate, so failing to do things like liberalise planning. Uh, so, uh, so far as you're concerned, uh, how your free market philosophy would have a reduction in state regulation. Yeah. So if you want to bring down the cost of things like domestic so fuel pausing prices... There, just pausing there, your free market philosophy would have us reducing state regulation. Is that right? So to reduce living costs, you need to reduce state regulation. Uh, and your uh, free market philosophy would have the private sector providing more public services. Is that right? So is that yes or no, Ms. Porter? I, I'm terribly sorry, but it's five to eight, and we're told we've got to wind up. So, so do, do, perhaps yes or no would be helpful. So would provide better... Would, well, let's, uh, let's just pause there. Let me ask the question differently, then. So responding to some evidence we've already heard. Um, uh, we're told that the cost of public services is high, in part because pay, we're told, within the public, public sector is high relative to the private sector. Is that right? In parts of the public sector, that's true. Yeah. Uh, and so the theory is, we're told, that if we privatise public services we will be able to reduce cost, yes? Well, I think you have to, as Andrew was saying earlier, I think you have to look at different public services. You have to look at things like healthcare, education. These are goods. These are things which we all need. You have to look at what's going to be the best way in each of these different areas for us to access these services. 
and, and those different funding models are going to be different depending upon what area you're talking about. And one consequence of privatisation is, as I think has already been alluded to, the cost of pay, wages will be deflated and the balance will go into the pockets of the private companies to whom the contracts are awarded. No, that's, that right? that's not necessarily the case at all. I mean, if you take, They're for example, doing it out of altruism. If you take, for, if you take, for example, education, and I think we'd all agree that access to education <coughs> is one of the most fundamental pro-poor policies that we can implement. There's clear evidence, if you look at places like Sweden, that allowing for-profit companies to run schools disproportionately gave kids from very poor socioeconomic backgrounds access to the best schools. And under those kinds of reforms, they did much better than children who came from richer backgrounds. Thank you. Uh, I think that's all we have for you. Thank you very much, Ms. Porter. Good evening. Uh, I'm sorry to see some people leaving already. Um, I, I, won't, I won't take it personally. Um, I'm very conscious that uh, austerity means that when you're on last and you've said you're going to talk for four minutes, you talk for only four minutes. So I will do my uh, very best and, and hope that the prosecution take that into account when they ask me all those difficult questions. Um, hello, I, I'm Tim Frost and I am a, a governor here at the London School of Economics. I'm not entirely sure why I've been called as an expert witness. <laughs> Perhaps because I have had some experience of austerity, but you will, you will judge. Austerity stands accused of subverting the aspirations to human rights described in the wonderfully named International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. But I believe there are circumstances when achieving these rights requires us to embrace austerity. There are times when austerity is a champion of our human rights, not a threat to them. Let me explain. As uh, Miss uh, Seppel Vader uh, uh, articulately explained to us earlier on, the wise authors of the covenant recognised that to realise our rights, we needed time, we needed resources, and we needed good judgement. They understood that we would only be able to achieve our goals progressively, that isn't a reference to police politics. It means it will take time to get there. They recognised that a government's commitments to achieving our human rights objectives had to be limited by its available resources. And they further recognised that how to use those limited resources requires democratically accountable governments to exercise good judgement. And one of the most important judgments which has to be made is whether we try to maximise our rights now or we focus on maximising them in the future. Austerity stands as the champion of our future rights. She knows that resources saved today can be used to secure more rights in the future. She knows that if a full realisation of our rights today, again as described earlier on, comes at the expense of record government deficits, 
an increased debt burden and bigger debt interest bills than it is coming at the expense of our rights in the future. There are always people who will say, you have to wait to find out what they say. <laughs> there are always people who will say, as we heard Will eloquently say earlier on, this time is different. This time we can spend or grow our way out of the difficulties. It is such a common refrain that the definitive book on the history of debt crisis through the ages is called This Time is Different. You heard it earlier on this evening. By Reinhardt and Rogoff, not LSE academics, but our director is trying to persuade them to come here, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> we need to heed the lessons of history. Let me quote a man who led his country through a recession and a debt crisis. These are not my words. We used to think, we used to think, you could spend your way out of recession and increase employment by boosting government spending. I tell you, in all candour, that option no longer exists. And in so far as it ever did exist, it only worked by injecting a bigger dose of inflation into the economy, followed by a higher level of employment at the next step. At the next step. Oh, visual aids. Um, that was Labour Prime Minister Jim Callaghan. There he is, speaking in 1976. Jim was a clever man with close connections to the LSC. He knew that this, this time it would not be different. So, did the government deficits of the 1970s, the rejection of austerity, help us progress our human rights objectives? No, they did not. Was that because Jim Callaghan's government didn't care about human rights? Of course it wasn't. Jim didn't recognise the need for austerity until it was too late. Until the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, gave him a telephone number and told him to give her a call. In 1976, I was growing up in a mining town in Nottinghamshire. I remember the consequences of big government and its attempts to spend its way out of recession. It was the poor, the weak and the vulnerable that suffered most. Pensioners, and in a Nottinghamshire mining town, most pensioners were women, had their, had their savings stolen by state-administered inflation. Recent immigrants suffered most when employment went up. We needed austerity then to help us bring back economic stability. Stability brought prosperity, and with prosper prosperity came the ability to realize our rights objectives. Those who would take risks with economic stability, no matter how well-intentioned, are putting our human rights at risk. Austerity stands as the guardian of our rights and the rights of our children and our grandchildren. She is falsely accused. Set her free. We want to move things on faster, so I have no questions myself to you, Mr. Frost. Thank you. I'm braced. Just a very few questions, Mr. Frost. Uh, I think you were being rather modest, weren't you, when you told us that you couldn't quite understand why you've been called as, as an expert. Mr. Frost? Modest? 
about... Well, let's just ask you something about I learned your... to be... Is that a question? Or... Well, let, let, you, you... I, I learned to be modest here as a graduate at the LSE. And my, my first job when I left the LSE was to run a hostel for alcoholics and drug addicts. I lived for a year. And that t- taught me some humility. And it taught me perhaps, yes, um, uh, QC, uh, some modesty uh, as well. But I've done many things in my life. Uh, lots of different jobs. I currently have four at the moment. Mm-hmm. You heard from my colleagues that there are lots of jobs being created at the moment. And my, my, silk, to- my, yeah. silk, well, my silk told me that I should confess that one of those four jobs is, uh, is as a banker. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Mr Frost. Because you are indeed a banker, and that's banker with a B, isn't it, Mr Frost? LAUGHTER uh, 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 May I just ask you, since you're here to tell us about the importance of austerity, the need to suffer now for our generations to come, can you tell us, please, what your annual income was last year? I think that objection is okay, well, uh, sustained. May I, may I put this differently? Well, you can ask. Uh, May I I just uh, put the question slightly differently then? One of the things that the jury will have to do when they come to decide their verdict is weigh up the various accounts they've heard, decide who is the most credible, and come to a conclusion based on those accounts. Can you tell us, Mr Frost, without revealing your income as a banker, whether or not you have experienced any cuts to your income in consequence of the measures we've heard about this evening? Um, uh, The politics of of envy, perhaps. Um, I'm afraid you're you're misinformed. I I don't work at a commercial bank. I have no income from being a banker. My income is very substantial... Um, and I would op- offer the observation that I, my tax bill has gone up very, very significantly since the new government came in, whilst my income has remained approximately flat over that period. So, yes, I have noticed the impact of the need for us to pay a bigger tax bill. It's not surprising tax bills have gone up. It's not surprising tax bills go up when income goes up. Uh, uh, now, now, Mr. Frost. No, just, no, can just... I just clarify? I said my income has not gone up, but my tax bill has gone up. I'm sorry, thank I didn't you. make that clear to you. No, uh, thank you. Uh, now, do you agree with the obs- well? Let's, let's first of all just introduce this question. You'll know who Warren Buffett is, won't you? Uh, yes. I think probably everybody in the room does. Do you agree with him that the wealthy do not pay sufficient tax? Uh, it's very wise to agree with Warren Buffett because he always seems to get most, most things right. Uh, he was talking in that comment specifically about the United States of America where tax rates on rich people are significantly lower than here. And so, yes, I have no hesitation in saying I agree with him. And you agree with him in the, context, in the domestic context, in the United Kingdom context? Uh, Warren Buffett doesn't make comments about things he doesn't understand. Um, so he's never commented about tax rates here in the UK. So... Well, given what we've heard about, so far as the impact on the poor and the vulnerable of these austerity measures is concerned, do you think yourself that you should pay more tax? Um, I um, will answer that question in the following way. I choose to make contributions to charities 
I'm sorry. <laughs> Can we listen to the witness? I choose to make contributions properly, to charities over and above the tax bill that I have because I think that the, the responsibility for caring about vulnerable people in society is not something that we can pass off to the state. The state is incompetent and inefficient, and the responsibility of looking after poor people and vulnerable people in our society is, is mine. And, and if this QC is going to be so personal about this, then I'll be personal and say I have a nephew who has Down syndrome, and my wife and I pay for that nephew. People are laughing and smiling, but if I get asked questions about my, what my income is, can't I say that I lived and ran a hospital for alcoholics and drug addicts? And can't I say that I pay for my, 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 child, uh, my nephew that has problems like that? But where are we going with this? What is this? Does this mean that I can't express opinions, that I can't appear as an expert witness, unless I am morally superior somehow to, to people here that don't give up their bus passes? I, I don't understand. Thank you. Um, just one final set of questions then, please, Mr. Frost. One, one um, final question, please. One final question. Okay, one final question, Mr. Frost. What do we say to our children now who are brought up in poverty without access to good education and university education when they grow up and ask us why we thought it was fine to dispense with their futures for the sake of those coming later? Um, the LSE uh, has just published a growth report on this. And we tell them about the recommendations of the LSE Growth Commission's report. We hope that they will be implemented. And the LSE Growth Commission report said there's too much state interference in education and we need, quote, a flexible economy of schools. So as, one of my, as Ruth was saying, we need more different providers of education. We don't say anything about having to spend more money. We talk about getting more variety and different uh, approaches to education. That's what we should be saying to our children. Thank you very much. The re-examination. Thank you very much. And is that, is that the defence case? That is the defence case. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, members of the jury, you've heard the prosecution case and you've heard the defence case. I am going to sum the case up to you very shortly indeed. Uh, you have in front of you an indictment, a list of charges. The prosecution must prove beyond reasonable doubt that austerity is guilty as charged, as set out in the list in front of you. Those charges consists of allegations that austerity is in breach of a number of international human rights covenants. What you have to decide is whether, on the evidence that you've heard tonight, you are satisfied so that you are sure that austerity is indeed in breach of those international covenants in the way that the indictment says. Clerk of the court, please. <laughs> I charge you to take this jury, Mr. Clerk. My Lord, the jury will now leave the courtroom. <laughs>
Everybody else will remain. Everybody else will remain. A degree of respect is owing to the jury. While the jury consider their verdict, there will be a break. You will be asked to vote on your return to the hall. The court does not sit past its normal time, whatever happens. <laughs> Mr. Justice Tomlinson is a man of general leisure. <laughs> and we will conclude proceedings at 9 p.m. regardless. You may now, when Mr. Justice Tomlinson has left the courtroom, <laughs> Mr. Justice Tomlinson, would you like to rise and depart? Would everybody please stand? The judge is leaving. You may now leave. Can we have quiet, please? Can we have quiet, please? Can we have quiet, please? It is, it is not normal for a High Court judge to enter a room in which there is endless chatter. Are we all sure we're quiet? Please rise for Mr. Justice Tomlinson. Can we please have a poll of the audience? Yes, my lord. Some of you may have noticed that the electronic gizmo <laughs> has been of which, cut. Of which the magic electronic gizmo, of which we are so proud, <laughs> has not been quite as effective as one would have wanted. Austerity is what happens. <laughs> I don't think at LLC, with our record, of fees. We emphasise austerity as the, as the reason for everything. Uh, so what I'm going to do as a clerk of the court, with the assistance of at least a number of stewards, this gentleman here, the red coats at the back, we're going to do a head count. And then we're going to go back to the jury for their verdict, which has already been agreed. Mr. Justice Tomlinson is going to ask them. We won't, you may be relieved to know, have time for expert reaction. Uh, I am now going to put to the audience, members of the jury, do not vote. Do not vote. <laughs> and the question put is this. Do you believe, beyond reasonable doubt, my lord, is that right? I'm not a lawyer myself, an amateur. <laughs> family has always provided clerks for the court. I've worked my way up. <laughs> Do you believe beyond reasonable doubt that austerity infringes the international human rights law that we have had outlined? Would those who are satisfied that that is the case who would find what is called a guilty verdict, raise their hand, please. Clerks, I want you to count. <laughs> I think you can... 
I think you can afford to count rather vaguely. <laughs> this is only... This is only a frippery. The jury is the key decision, and the jury will have listened carefully. This is like deciding O.J. Simpson was guilty on the basis of watching the telly. <laughs> However, we have a large number, and the approximate number... There's 111 in the middle. 111 in the middle. It looks to be about 40 there. It looks to be about 30 there. I make it 100. And I make it 181. Would those of you who are not satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the uh, austerity is guilty. Raise your arm, please. Oh, not bad. Oh, God. Well done. Can we count those, please? Can we count those, please? Seven. I think there's been a piece of human rights advocacy downgrading of the number, a bit like the sterling thing. 181 and approximately... 39. <laughs> so, my lord, my lord, the vote that doesn't matter with respect to the audience is 181 to 39. My lord, over to you for the serious verdict. Thank you, Mr. Clark. I'm pleased that your family weren't hereditary mathematicians as well as <laughs> hereditary clerks. <laughs> Members of the jury, could you please now tell me your verdict on the charges against austerity? How do you find Mr have, Foreman? Can we have a microphone? And oh. <laughs> can we have a microphone, please? We find austerity not guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Votes were 9 for guilty, 3 for not guilty. We should have had a direction. Why we didn't have a direction? There is a lot of grumbling on my immediate left. <laughs> they may be aware of that old English... That old English remark, pride comes before a fall. <laughs> there was a lot of rejoicing at their convincing of the audience. Less rejoicing now. Uh, a vote of, what did you say, sir, nine to four? Nine to three. Nine to three, a jury of 12. I think given that we are already at 10 minutes to nine, and given that we need to acknowledge a number of people without whom this would have been not in a cliche, but in a real way impossible, I think that I will just leave you to absorb the fact that a jury of children and young persons, on whom more in a moment, on whom more in a moment, came here and listened carefully with an especial responsibility and produced that verdict, acquitting austerity of breach of international human rights law by a vote of nine to three. They especially asked that we should be made aware that the vote was nine to three, which I'll remind you means that nine of them was not persuaded beyond reasonable doubt in the... Yeah, the other way around. Nine of them was persuaded. 
Three of them were not beyond visible. <laughs> were, were those three stand up, please? <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, Mr. Howe is inclined to offer all three of them positions in his tenancy. As a <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it, what we were trying to do, what we're trying to do here, was get at some issues in a different kind of way. And uh, the we there is LSE and just there. And I think we need to acknowledge the uh, impact of the just fair NGO uh, in framing this and assisting in this. And of course LSE, of course LSE, uh, which is uh, an extraordinary place to work with amazing support, as evidenced by the fact that the director of LSE, whom I thought was in India, announcing scholarships and trying to explain how Mr. Cameron had decided you can come to England whenever you want, despite their various <laughs> immigration rules, <laughs> uh, was here. But actually, some of you may have noticed, lurking on the right-hand side, not the new statesmen so much, though we acknowledge the new statesmen who are backing, I think, branching out this wonderful festival, but Matrix Chambers. Now, there's a story to that. Matrix Chambers are tremendously supportive of LSE, possibly not unrelated to the fact that I'm a member of Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you may, as you were fighting for your wine, have failed to appreciate that there was wine. Uh, but, we can certainly acknowledge that Matrix Chambers has provided great support. I'm not allowed, apparently, in these post-Libyan, politically correct, highly scrupulous days <laughs> to say sponsor, because apparently you'll all work out that, in fact, they're doing something like we're doing something, letting in people from Matrix to become professors of human rights law or something. <laughs> so they've absolutely, I want to make clear, not sponsored. Not sponsored. <laughs> They're here in a kind of bibulous spirit. <laughs> uh, and I want to just acknowledge that. And uh, I think, you know, in the order of, of people, you know, this chap, Hugh Thomason, is a colleague. And what a thing to do, you know, what a thing to do to give up this Friday evening, to come along here, and to enter into the spirit as well as the legality of the occasion. And I think we all owe Hugh, the judge, the presiding judge, a tremendous debt of gratitude to do this selflessly. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm the expert on this. This is the only event I have ever done where every single person I asked to do it said yes immediately. And what we need to understand on all sides here is the extent to which these people are giving off themselves, not quite, you know, in, in, a, in a way which is giving back to civil society. And I want to just acknowledge Karen, who I think, Karen, you've been in the Supreme Court. God help the witnesses there, but you don't get to cross-examine witnesses. <laughs> Only that you shouted the judges there and say, what school were you at, my lord, and stuff. <laughs> helpful, helpful advocacy. <laughs> Why have you chosen yet another three white men? Uh, Karen here, and Jamie from Derby Street. Karen's from Matrix. Jamie, you're from Derby Street, aren't you? That's correct. Yeah, do you want to do a little... No, you're not allowed to do no. a little ad. <laughs> uh, and... Look, Martin Howe, Martin was on the Bill of Rights Commission, and Martin has been a tremendous, I think the, you know, the, the sort of Etonian gloss will be a sport, but what I mean by that, he's been willing to push this, and with his colleague Richard Honey, to whom we're deeply grateful as well, has actually taken this incredibly seriously, and has really worked hard at it, and I think that is fantastic, and I think the legal teams deserve praise, but with, with people who are completely 
invisible tonight, but who have been tremendous. Four students, Greg, Ariana, James, and Sarika. Where are you? Where are you? you all, there's two of them. Where's the other? There they are. Look, all of them. expert we wrote to uh, said they'd love to do it and did it. Came on time. Tim Frost, Ruth, Ruth Porter and Andrew Lillico over there. Thank you very, very much for your presentation. <laughs> Will, Will Hutton, Polly Toynbee and if I may, without uh, kind of being rude, single out Magdalena Spolders, come over here for this and has made this the centrepiece of a visit to the United Kingdom. Uh, you may have seen the uh, profile offer in The Guardian the other day, and uh, you know, what a great thing to have a UN, what, a, what is it, special There are, I mean, a lot of people in Tennessee, you see these stewards here. Uh, LSE is a fantastic place to work. It, it does events like this the way I know no other place does events, and all kind of open to the public. This festival is amazing. This festival is run by a person. I don't know if she's here. Louise Gaskell, are you here? No, she's busy planning the next one. <laughs> they, uh, they have been fantastic, and I want to acknowledge Louise. Uh, you can tell her, Louise I've said that, although she won't be, she won't be watching whatever it's called, a thingy. Uh, but also in law, in law, tweeting away there, there's been a fantastic colleague of mine, Bradley. Stand up, Bradley Barlow. Stand up. <laughs> Bradley. Now, the really... Thank you, Bradley. You've been indispensable to this. Indispensable. The really exceptional dimension to this, which is why I talked up the verdict, because I think it matters an awful lot, were the jury. A lot of you were asking me outside about who the jury, what are the jury, and so on. There, there they are, all there in the front. There they are in the front, right? There they are. Look at them. Look at them. Now, they, that, was, that was what I call a premature round of applause. They've been, uh, they've, we've, we've worked with the Office of the Children's Commission. I want to notice in particular Tom Green. And we have got people who have specifically represent children and young people, young people. And the purpose of that, what's the purpose of that? It is that... Uh, as we heard today, one of the big discussions is about the future, and they're disproportionately affected by current policies, and it's only right that we should have emblematic representatives of a community of people who are going to be the next generation managing it in whatever way it turns out. And so that was an important point, and the audience vote was one thing, and the jury vote was another. They sat through all of this. There were, I mean, none of them appeared to me to fall asleep, though, I mean, it was, I think, pretty riveting throughout. But nevertheless, it was quite a power of concentration. They've had a careful consultation. I think they're, get, they're getting a sort of certificate that will acknowledge their involvement. But I think we should now, secondly, just before I wind up, I'll say one more thing and then we'll be off. We should now acknowledge their fantastic role today. Well done, guys. Well done. <laughs> We know the three of you have a new job at the bar in line up session. <laughs> now, uh, if you want to know more about this event, Just Fair have a great website. There's lots of stuff on it. The researchers here, uh, Gregory, Anna, James, and Sarika, did some good paperwork. There's the indictment. There's all that stuff. 
and we need to actually be able to go to that if you want to look at more stuff, right? Or find out more about just there. Or, indeed, I'm being told by the propagandists for jerk with just there. <laughs> or find out more, and indeed, join. Can you join? Is it possible to join? <laughs> uh, now, there might be a few drinks left. We're going to go off because we need to look after our amazing guests who've given so much of their time. Uh, but grab a drink. There might be even a clean glass. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. It's an amazing thing to see so many of you here at the end with a natural break. So congratulate yourselves. The evening is over.